And before we begin today, I just want to say a word to our young people. Most of you will be staying up here now to be listening to a really long sermon. And I know it's going to be difficult for you, uh, but I'm your pastor as well as the pastor of all the older folks in the church. And what I have to say doesn't come from me, it comes from the Lord, it comes from His Word. We're talking from uh, the Word of God, the Bible, that conveys to us God's truth that He wants you to know, even though you're young. And uh, I hope that you'll ask Him right now, just to help you listen. You're not going to get everything, you're not going to understand everything, but there certainly are things you can understand And you just need to ask the Lord to help you to pay attention the best that you can. I know that even some of the adults at times, their minds travel elsewhere. Once in a while, I see them nodding off. So uh, you're not alone in this endeavor every Sunday. And I trust as we come before uh, God's word today, you'll do your best to listen. So we're in Revelation chapter 3, and we're actually... uh, listening to something the Lord Jesus himself says to this particular church. And although he said it to a church that existed thousands of years ago, its message is still to us today, and it's a very important one, and we need to try to listen. Now, we come to this church we call the Church of Laodicea, and many Christians believe that this best represents the condition of the church in our age, in our time. They view it as complacent, as indifferent, as self-sufficient, as apathetic, as tepid in its relationship to Christ. And that certainly is true to a certain extent, but it can be that way in any generation. But I've chosen the term hypocritical to best describe this church. And although we don't find the word hypocrisy there, as we read it earlier this morning, the attitude of this congregation demonstrates hypocrisy. This was a church that believed itself to be something that it wasn't. They were blinded by their pride and their self-sufficient spirit. They thought they needed nothing, including Christ. But in fact, they were in need of saving faith in him to change their condition. The Lord Jesus describes them here as lukewarm a condition between hot and cold, a condition that really is so repulsive to the Lord that he's ready to spit them out of his mouth. That's a metaphor of rejection, a metaphor of condemnation. His attitude toward them is similar to the attitude he held while he was ministering on this earth to the religious leaders of his day. They're the only group that he refers to as hypocrites, People who thought they were right with God, his chosen people, at least they thought they were, but they were blinded to the truth of their wayward condition, just like this church of Laodicea. Now, this church had grown wealthy and self-sufficient like the city, which was known for its financial prowess, its gold bullion, its rich black wool trade, and the medicinal healing of an ISAB that was known to the world of that day. But militarily, it had to be lukewarm because it had a deficient water supply that we'll learn about a little bit later. 
So the city learned to live with other city-states through compromise and neutrality and kind of being in between. The church had become lukewarm in its relation to spiritual activity and devotion to the Lord. As a matter of fact, it very likely had more hypocrites than genuine believers. Is that not a major complaint of the unchurched toward those who go to church today? Do they not think, well, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. They worship God on Sunday morning and they live like the devil the rest of the week. That's the opinion of a lot of people as they observe folks who go to churches today. This is not a church that we really want to emulate. So let's take to our heart what our Lord says about this church that we might not follow her ways. Our Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing on your word this morning. Help us, Lord, to pay attention to it because it's addressed to us as well as the ancient church of Laodicea. Help us, Lord, not to be a hypocrite, not to be in between, not to be lukewarm, but to be zealous and hot for the Lord Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we come to chapter 3, verse 14, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write this. Jesus is speaking to the church, the last messenger who's going to take this message to the church, and what a message it is. It's a stinging rebuke with no commendation. And the Lord conveys his revulsion over that condition, but the door of repentance is always open to those who will go through it. And he speaks here as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he communicates aspects, first of all, of his own nature and character. He says, these things says the Amen. And this is the only title, uh, only time this title is used of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does he mean by it? Well, literally, this word means so be it. Every once in a while, and in our church it's a long while, the pastor may say something that uh, makes a strong point, and somebody will say what? Amen. They're saying, so be it. They're saying, I agree with that. That's true, and I just want to voice my opinion. Now, Jesus is the divine affirmation or amen of all the promises, all the truths of God we find in his word. The Bible says, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. And it also indicates Christ's ability to fulfill what he predicts. And in this case, judgment against the church if they fail to repent. So again, they need to listen. Then he is called here the faithful and true witness, A witness is someone who testifies of what they have seen, what they have heard, what they know to be true in their experience. Jesus is a faithful witness when he reveals the true condition of the church, whether it be ancient or whether it be present, and what it needs to do to remedy whatever condition it is found in. Then he is called the beginning of the creation of God. Now, there are those who say this means that Jesus was the first created being, but that's not its meaning here or elsewhere in the Bible when it's used of the Lord Jesus. The term beginning refers to source or origin or first cause. So it means that Christ is the fountainhead of creation. 
that he was intimately involved in it. And this is clear in the rest of the book of Revelation, the Gospel of John, and Paul's epistles. He is not a created being. He is the creator. And as such, the church and all people are accountable to him. Now, what does he have to say to the church? And the first thing that comes is actually a condemnation in verses 15 through 17. He says to this church in verse 15, first of all, I know your works. I know everything about you. And that's a reminder to us today that the Lord Jesus knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows your name. He knows how you act. He knows what you do. He knows what you say. And he even knows what you think. Nothing about us can be hid from him. And someday, you and I will be accountable for our actions and whether or not we put our trust in him for salvation. Now, what does the all-knowing Lord tell this church? What does he reveal about them? Well, here's what I see. That you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. Now, this morning, I hope nobody's hot because the temperature's controlled in here. I hope nobody's cold either, but somebody might be. But he's not really talking about uh, these things in that way. He's really taking something that would have been very clear in the minds of the Laodiceans and teaching them a lesson about it, something very familiar to the church. Now, Laodicea was located near two other towns, each of which had a unique water source. To the north was a town named Hierapolis, which had a natural hot spring. And people today like to go to these places as a resort, and they get to go into the springs and, and uh, 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 be perhaps healed or made them feel well because they, they go into those hot waters. And those in that day were used for medicinal purposes as well. To the east was the uh, city of Colossae, and they had just the opposite. They had cold, pure spring water. And in contrast to those two towns, Laodicea just had a little... Uh, kind of a, a, a creek running through it that really couldn't supply the needs of the city. So what they did is they piped in water from these two other places. But over a lengthy distance, the hot water would become cool. The cold water would become kind of in between, cold and hot. So the end result is it's not one or the other, it's lukewarm, it's tepid, it's in between. Now, some suggest this indicates that the church was lacking in works that would bring healing like hot water or be refreshing to the community like cold water. But this doesn't really seem to fit the contrast between something hot and something cold. The word hot here alludes to be uh, something to, to be boiling over, and in its participial form, it means to be fervent or zealous or uh, really gung-ho for something. Um, the Lord expects his people who know him to be fervent. 
This is what the church was lacking. They were not hot. Cold, then, would seem to indicate an opposite disposition or condition, cold towards spiritual things, even perhaps hostile, suggesting, then, that there were uh, that, 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 that cold is a condition of not knowing the Lord at all. But how could the Lord then say, I wish you were either hot or cold instead of lukewarm? How could he rather someone be lost than in this lukewarm condition? Well, I want to give you a scriptural example of that. And if you'll flip back to Matthew chapter 21, uh, we can just take a moment and take a look at that. But Jesus is addressing religious leaders of his day, hypocrites who believed they were right with God, but they weren't. And in chapter 21 of Matthew, verse 31, halfway through that verse, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors who were hated in that day, kind of like they are today, and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. They're lost. They're cold. They haven't come to the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're better off than the hypocrites because the Lord can deal with them. He can save them. He can give them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots did believe him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe. So this group of people who thought they were uh, blessed of God, who thought they were the favorites of God, who thought they knew God, really didn't. And the harlots and the publicans who didn't know God, when he gave them a message, that message, they repented and they turned to him. And so they became hot when they had previously been cold. So maybe that's what we're talking about here. There are some people that the Lord can deal with easier if they're, they're totally lost than somebody who thinks they're saved and they don't need to change. That's what's going on here at Laodicea because they're in the worst place. They're in a place in between that's called lukewarm or tepid. Now, again, the city could receive the hot waters of Hierapolis via aqueduct, the cold waters of Colossae, but by the time they reach the city, they're lukewarm. I don't know about you, but I don't like to take a lukewarm shower. I don't like a lukewarm uh, glass of water. And I don't like a lukewarm cup of tea. It's either hot or it's cold. And Jesus says being in between is something that is totally unacceptable, spiritually speaking. As a matter of fact, this is what he says here. uh, I could wish you were hot or cold, so then because you're lukewarm, you're not either I will vomit you out of my mouth. I suppose all of us know what that means. And we don't like it. It's nasty. But the church has gotten to the place where it makes Jesus himself, the one who should be the center of the church, feel like throwing up. That's not a good place to be. And so the Lord goes on in verse 17 to explain their real condition. Not what they think they are, but what they're really like. So what does this convey when he says they're in this lukewarm place? Were they mediocre, content with a mere profession of faith in Christ, 
satisfied with much less than their best and lacking any kind of devotion to him? Or were they indifferent, expressing a lack of interest in spiritual things they should find exciting and interesting and moving? Were they complacent, self-satisfied to a point of stagnancy, comfortable in their condition, unwilling to change or even recognize a need for it? Or were they guilty of something even worse? Well, let's see what the church said about itself, which conveys their condition. Jesus goes on to say in verse 17, because you say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and I don't need anything. That's the state of this church. It's really kind of an arrogant boast that we have here, saying that, I don't need anything. I become wealthy by my own means. And um, we don't really even need Christ in this church anymore. So the church is in a state where its people felt no need for anything spiritual, uh, no need for the riches that are promised in the word of God, just getting along with this profession and pretty much living like the world. And we'll talk about that a little more later. But Jesus reveals their true spiritual condition. He knows what it is, and it's just the opposite of what they think it is. What does he say they're really like? He says, uh, you do not know that you are wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked, all in a spiritual sense. Now, being wretched and miserable, probably all of us at one point in time have felt a little bit that way, but this alludes to a pitiful state where you're really reduced to a beggarly kind of existence. The word wretched is used elsewhere where for losing everything as a result of being plundered in a time of war. So that's not a good condition to be in either. But this church does not know that spiritually speaking, that's where they are, even though they're getting along fine in the world. They were poor, which is the opposite of rich. They were destitute, having nothing spiritually speaking. Uh, You can have all the riches of the world, everything you want, but you can be poor in the most important things that are eternal in nature. They're blind. And we come to the word of God, blindness is often used as a metaphor for being spiritually obtuse. By being blinded by worldly philosophies, the wiles of the devil, uh, your own sinfulness. You, you can't see it. You're not aware of it. And this church was blind to the truth about itself. And they're naked, which alludes to a destitute state that causes one to feel shame. It, too, is a metaphor of your spiritual condition before God. You don't have anything that will cover your sinfulness before God. So, do you think this describes a Christian? Are these things indicative of someone who is saved and someone who really knows the Lord or someone who is lost? 
A person who makes a profession of faith in Christ and has no interest in him or spiritual things is a hypocrite. He's got one foot in the church, one foot in the world. He believes he's safe, but he's really not. He's not hot or fervent. He says he's not cold because he's making a profession of faith. What he's really saying is he doesn't know the Lord at all. So being in between is being a hypocrite with a hollow kind of faith. Now, this church may have been like a lot of churches today, very wealthy. You, uh, you pull up to the church parking lot, a lot and you see this huge, beautifully adorned building and it's full of hundreds and hundreds of people. They might have all kinds of programs going on. And they may feel comfortable in their uh, town because they're not suffering any kind of hardship or persecution. And it's, uh, it's people may have thought they're saved or think they're saved, but are they really? It seems they have everything but the most important thing, and that's a real relationship with God through Christ. Now, this condition is further revealed when we take a look at the correction that Christ gives in verses 18 through 20. In verse 8, excuse me, verse 18, he gives them counsel. He gives them advice like a spiritual counselor would. So let's see what he says. I counsel you to buy from me certain things that will change your condition. And uh, what he says corresponds to what they think they have, what was plentiful in their community, in their city, but they really didn't have these things. And the irony is that Christ calls upon them to buy things because supposedly they're so rich But these things are only available to them through the grace of God, and they can only be purchased by faith in Christ. So let's see what he counsels them to do. In verse 17, he says, or excuse me, verse 18, buy from me gold refined in the fire. Now, did Jesus really want them to buy refined gold from him like we do online? No, this is a metaphor for something. Now, here's a church. They're materially rich, but they're spiritually impoverished, poor. And they need to become like the church at Smyrna. You remember what they were like? They were very poor materially, but the Lord said they were spiritually rich because they were trusting in Christ. Now, this gold is pure because it's refined by fire, which removes its impurities. And that suggests to us the genuine faith necessary to be saved and not be a hypocrite. A faith that will be tested by fire and proved to be true. It's genuine. Now, James writes, Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. And Peter says 
that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So pure, genuine faith is necessary for salvation to get a person out of the cold and out of the lukewarm state. Then the Lord Jesus says something else you need to buy. Uh, White garments that you may be clothed. Now again, he doesn't want them to buy literally white uh, clothing. He's speaking in a spiritual sense here. And he wants them to be properly clothed in relationship to God. Laodicea was noted for its rich black wool trade from which garments, of course, could be made. But the church needed to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And again, nakedness conveys the shameful state of sin that encompasses every person. The only way the shame of sin can be removed is through the work of Christ. He paid the penalty for our sin, which is eternal death. And when he put, uh, when we put our faith in him, God will no longer see us as a guilty sinner before him, but as a righteous person who's put their faith and trust in Jesus. What he does is he forgives our sins and he cleanses us from those sins and he gives to us the the beauty, the perfection, the righteousness of Christ. And that's how he will see us. Then the Lord Jesus says, you also need to buy uh, ointment and and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now here again, he's relating to something that was prominent in the city of Laodicea. Another commodity that they had was an eye powder uh, that they put into tablet form and they could ship it all over the place in the world. You got that, you mixed it with water and a clay-like substance and you put it on your eyes, kind of like ladies do today to beautify themselves. But this was supposed to to soothe your eyes. Now, the Laodicean church, as we saw, was blind to its spiritual condition. They needed the ointment of the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Spirit of God, to see their hypocrisy and truly come to Christ. So these are the things that need to be purchased, if you will, through grace, by faith, by trusting God. So this indicates to us uh, that he counsels them to obtain these spiritual qualities that the church of Laodicea was living a lie, that most of his people weren't even really saved. Now they may have thought so, but nothing here describes a regenerate condition. Their lukewarm state doesn't mean they never heard anything of a spiritual nature, Um, uh, like those who are cold, but their lack of fervency shows they're not genuinely saved. They're hypocrites who think they will escape hell by their profession, 
yet they're caught up in the worldly lifestyle of their city and they're thoroughly content with that. So Christ gives them a command. He tells them what they need to do now. And here we see the tone of his address change. It's a little bit different. He says in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So their condition is perilous, but it's not irreversible. His motivation for what he says is love. Now this church is not deserving of Christ's love, but that's his character. And so he shows love and affection toward his church. And because of that, he rebukes verbally and he chastises physically. Now all of you, I would think, at some point in time, have been rebuked by your parents or some authority. And they speak to you and they tell you what's wrong and what needs to be corrected. They don't always do that in love, but hopefully that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to do something good for you. And they're doing it because they care about you. They don't want you to go down the wrong way in life. They don't want you to just go your own way, do whatever you want, whatever pleases you, because that's the way that leads to hell. So they're trying to turn you around. And that's what the Lord Jesus is doing here. So what is the church then supposed to do? Well, he tells them. Therefore, verse 19, be zealous and repent. Now, we all know what repentance means, don't we? It means to have a change of mind, a change of thinking, a change of direction. These people thought they were saved, but they weren't, so they needed to change their mind. They needed to go in a different direction. They needed to repent. They needed to get out of that state of hypocrisy to see their need and truly confess Christ. That's the only pathway to being hot or zealous. Now, it's interesting here that the verb zealous here is related to the noun to be hot. Back up in the, in the previous verses. They were not zealous for the Lord, and the only way they could become zealous was to repent of their sin of hypocrisy, turn to Christ for his salvation. The verb to repent here is in a tense that indicates this is something that needs to be done at a specific moment in time. And you have to turn away from your condition of sinfulness And you need to do that without delay because you're in great danger of being spit out of his mouth of judgment. So he wants them to do this right away. And once you understand what you need to do, you need to do it. And then we come to verse 20, which is a great invitation in the Bible. I remember years ago when we were in New Hampshire, we were dealing with a couple who owned a little diner up there. And uh, we shared the gospel with them. And it just the, the, the wife just didn't seem to be getting it. Well, finally, one time we're talking to them, I quoted this verse to you, and the light went on. Boom. I need to open my life to Christ. And that's the way the scriptures are. But imagine this, in verse 20, as he's uh, writing to this church and giving this 
message of the church. He, <clears throat> he says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Imagine Jesus is outside the church that he's supposed to be the head of and is knocking to get in. He's not in this church because there are so many hypocrites. But he wants to get in. And so he invites the people to hear what he has to say and to open the door. If anyone hears my voice in this hypocritical church, I will come into him if you'll just open the door and let me come in. And I'll dine with him, I'll sup with him, I'll fellowship with him. The idea of having a meal with somebody is the thought of friendship and fellowship and, and uh, uh, getting together with someone that you have a close relationship with. So there he is standing, knocking at the door of the, of the church itself and the people who are in it and anyone else who will open up their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in him and truly confess him. He says, I'll come in and I will sup with you. I will have fellowship with you. I will give you all of my riches. I will clothe you with my righteousness and you will be my child, and I'll walk with you for the rest of your life until you get to eternity and come to home and heaven with me. That's what Jesus is saying to these people here. Open the door and let me come in. Now let me convey something to you. Christianity is viewed by many as a religion, and as a religion, it is the largest religion in the whole world. According to um, the World Population Review 2021, there are 2.38 billion Christians in the world. That's what? Over a quarter? Maybe even higher than that, maybe 33%. And there are all kinds of denominations and churches. <clears throat> Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Anglican, Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, on and on it goes. But of all these different circles, how many Laodicean churches do you think there are? How many play the hypocrite, making a profession of faith according to their creed, but not knowing anything of the true faith in Christ? How many try to follow the rules of the religion, hoping it will save them, and by what they do, they'll get into heaven someday? How many are satisfied with doing what they think will please God enough to get them into heaven, but doing everything else that will get them into hell? Is it any wonder that it all makes the Lord sick and want to vomit? That's why it's so important that we think seriously about God's word about his way of salvation and not play the hypocrite. It's better to be cold and not saved where God can reach you and, and speak to your heart if you'll open it than it is to be somewhere in between where you think you're saved but you're really not. And of course, he wants his people to be hot. Well, the Lord Jesus closes with some consolation in verse 21 as he usually does he says to him who overcomes i will grant to sit with me on my throne so now he's looking to the future and a lot of people don't understand 
that Jesus didn't go back into heaven to stay there forever and ever. He's coming back to this world someday. There are just tons of scripture that convey this to us. And this reminds of that. The one who overcomes is the one who comes to him in genuine faith and confesses their sin and trusts him as their savior. Not a hypocrite who says they've done that, but they don't really even act like it. It's those who overcome, those who trust in me, those who are unhypocritical in their faith, those who are zealous, these are the ones who will rule with me when I come in that kingdom. That kingdom of righteousness where all the junk that goes on in the world is not going to exist any longer. And he promises that they're going to sit with him as he comes and takes his throne. And then he goes to say, uh, I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So he's talking about his life. And he was obviously never a hypocrite. There was no hypocrisy. There was no lack of fervor or faith. There was no cowering or compromise in his life. There was only deep spiritual zeal to accomplish his mission of saving you and saving me. And as a result, he went back to heaven and he sat at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. And now he awaits to come back to earth and take up his earthly throne to rule men. And we will have a place there or we will have a place in hell. There's only two ways. Then he closes with a final warning as he does to all the churches we've looked at. And that's in verse 22. He who has an ear, we all do. Let him hear. Let him understand. Let him take to heart. what the Spirit says to the churches. So pay attention because God's going to hold you accountable for what you do with the Lord Jesus. Well, we have people here today. Some may be cold. Really never heard this much before. Don't know where you're at when it comes to God. Well, that's okay because God can reach you. I hope most of us here today are hot because we've trusted Christ as our Savior. We really want to live for him. And uh, I hope that we don't have anybody who's lukewarm. Somewhere in between because that's the worst place to be. Those who are cold yet need to come to the gospel. Maybe they're at the point in their life where they're too young to comprehend it. Maybe they're just learning about it and, and they're not familiar with it. Maybe some need to start paying attention to it. The Lord Jesus says, you better listen. God's giving you an opportunity. He's giving you a chance. He's going to hold you accountable for what you do. So, so listen. And again, most of us are saved today. But we know how fervency can ebb and flow. <clears throat> so you have a responsibility to stay close to the Lord, to walk with him. To not be hypocritical. To be wholehearted. And uh, if you begin to slip, well, then we begin to get on a little bit dangerous ground. So we have a responsibility to be fervent in our walk with the Lord. And again, being tepid, as we have seen, refers to a false profession. 
I hope there's nobody here who doesn't know for sure they're saved, but there might be. And if you profess that, but you really don't have the sense that you are, well, one of the lessons is assess your true state, think about it, see yourself as you really are, and make amends. Come to the Lord, make a true profession. Nobody can do that for you. You have to do that for yourself. We're also reminded here of what characterizes a person who is really saved, who knows the Lord. Well, we're spiritually rich in Christ. We possess all the promises of his word. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ that results in our righteous behavior now and our good works. We're not blind to the truth of God's word anymore. We have the capacity to understand it now and to live by it. And finally, we're reminded of the truth that we have a glorious future that will be with the Lord forever and ever and will include his being with him in his reign in this world. So this morning, as we come before the Lord's table, are you hot? Are you cold? Or are you lukewarm? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful today for your goodness to us as you reveal these truths in your word. We pray, Lord, that all of us have listened to it this morning and that we will be able to tell whether we're cold, hot, or somewhere in between. We pray, Lord, for those who may not yet know you, that they would open up their minds to the truth of your word and learn more about it so that they can understand and make a decision. We thank, Lord, those who are hot today. Keep us fervent, Lord. Keep us serving you. Uh, Keep us growing in the graces uh, that we've seen here that should be characterized by Christian people. Lord, we trust that there's no one here today who's making a false profession. But if somebody is, Lord, help them to see it and to deal with it. Bless us as we come before your table now, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, men, if you'll come, please.